Well, it's a joy to see you back as we continue our journey through James together. Those of you that have been here throughout the study, you know that there have been many weeks where perhaps you've asked me to take a dagger out of your chest. You're like, oh man, that just stabbed right through the heart. I do want to preface that as we start today in James chapter 5, James will begin by talking about unbelievers. So keep that, 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 you know, that spear or that, that knife at bay. Don't stab yourself. Don't pierce yourself through for yet because we're going to get a little reprieve this morning. We're going to get some encouragement as we see that God is our defense. And God's going to encourage us to patiently persevere through difficult times. Now, each of us are in all different seasons of life. Some of us are in the midst of severe persecution, trials. And some of us might be at a peak where life is good right now. But my hope and my prayer this morning is that we all leave here encouraged, reminded that if God is for us, who could be against us? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your scripture this morning. Thank you that we come here today to study your truth, not to hear an opinion from a man or from each other, but to study the truth you've given us, that we might be encouraged in your truth, that you might reveal yourself more to us through your word. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to respond. I pray that we would be a people who rejoice as we worship you in the study of your word. God, we pray that you would be glorified in this place and that your spirit would be our teacher. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, if you're taking notes, we're going to be looking at a sermon called Patiently Persevering. And if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please turn to James chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, you can open up to your bulletin. And please stand as we honor the public reading of God's Word. James chapter 5 this morning. We'll be looking at the first 12 verses verses 1 through 12 this morning. I'll be reading from the ESV this morning. James writes, and I remember, before we get there, because it's rough, he's talking to unbelievers outside the church when he first starts. Verse 6 verses. Then you'll see the transition in verse 7 when he talks about brothers. Okay? So hold on to the conviction up front. If you're a believer this morning, he's speaking to the unbeliever. So, starting in verse 1, Come now, you rich Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvester have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. 
As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. So reads God's infallible, inerrant, and holy word. Please be seated, church. So thankful that those first six verses there are to the unbeliever and not to the believer this morning. However, if you come in here this morning not knowing the Lord, understand that most of us in here could fall into the classification of being rich. On a standard of global proportion, many of us, are rich compared to those around the globe. Many of us have more than others do. As a matter of fact, on the entire globe, Christians that are all around the globe, guess where the wealthiest Christians live? Right here in the United States of America. But here, James is going to be addressing the unbelievers. Please recall with me what James is already arguing through this letter. James is talking about genuine faith. If we profess faith in Christ, there should be evidence of that faith. That there should be a testimony, a witness of grace, of good works in our lives. That people could see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. It's not just that I say I believe in Jesus. It's not that I say that He is my Lord and Savior. It's that He has transformed me from the inside out. And there's evidence of that work within me. So looking back at James chapter 5, we need to understand this context of what James is writing about. You guys remember how the letter opened up, who James addressed this letter to? The 12 tribes in the dispersion. So the Jewish believers here in Jerusalem fell under great persecution for their faith. Their faith cost them something. You know, we don't, many of us don't understand that. Some of us, perhaps in the workplace, perhaps in a relationship, might understand that. Where we get persecuted in our workplace or maybe in a relationship for our faith. But here, they even lost the means to make a living. They've lost the way to provide for their family. So they were scattered abroad. They were scattered, fled from Jerusalem. I like the way Art Kent Hughes put it when he referred to them. He said, James's scattered Jewish church was being kicked around the Mediterranean like a soccer ball. They were all around because of the persecution. They were, we could say, religious refugees. Don't we read about that all the time or see it in the news about religious refugees? This is what was going on in Jerusalem at the time. The Sanhedrin, the religious lead or head at the time, saw these Jesus followers as a nuisance. Saw him as aberrant teaching and the persecution began. Those who would follow the religious leaders at the time came against the believers in Christ. They were looking for a Savior to come and deliver them from Rome. But Christ came to save them for all eternity. They missed it. These religious refugees, they were at the mercy of wealthy landowners as they went to find a way to make a living. And these wealthy landowners would exploit them, much like slavery. 
that they went to try to find a living to provide for their families. But these wealthy landowners that James is going to address in these first six verses took advantage of them. Took advantage of them so much, not even paying them when they were supposed to be paid so they couldn't provide for their families. So James begins here speaking like a prophet of old from the Old Testament. That the readers in the church would have been encouraged that he's reminding them of the way that God will judge the wicked. He's encouraging them that as you go through persecution, realize that God is a perfect judge. Church, I want you to think about that for a moment. Because don't we get persuaded sometimes when we see the wicked prospering? And we say, how is that fair? Where is God in this? How could they treat the righteous this way? James is saying, realize God is a perfect judge. And the coming of the Lord is at hand. Be encouraged. He's speaking. And he speaks the same type of judgment upon these wicked as the prophet of old would say. Look how he starts in verse 1. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. that sound good? I don't want to be labeled as part of the, the rich there that are going to be weeping and howling. Scripture also talks about wailing. We see these, or these words used in the Old Testament to describe the sound that unbelievers will make on the day of judgment. Weeping, howling, wailing, uncontrollable, sobbing. Because judgment will come upon them. Vengeance is the Lord's. James here is speaking in a very familiar Old Testament manner. And the reason he does is to encourage the church, saying, remember how the prophets have already foretold the judgment of the wicked. But you, saints, are to persevere, to patiently persevere. Now get it wrapped around your mind. These believers were oppressed, poor Christians. And James is trying to encourage them. Saying, when you look at the rich, when you look at those who are oppressing you, understand and remember, God will judge the wicked. And not only will he judge the wicked, but James is encouraging the reader that the coming of the Lord is at hand. That this can occur at any moment, so hold on. James sounds much like the prophets of old. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6. Isaiah says, Wail! For the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty, it will come. That's how the prophets spoke. No wonder why they weren't so popular, right? They would come and speak on behalf of the Lord and instruct the people, you must repent and turn, or God's wrath is coming upon you. Isaiah, Amos, Job, Jeremiah, Micah, Malachi, all of these from the Old Testament speak specifically about God's judgment coming upon the wicked, rich people. They all speak judgment. James here is speaking in a like manner. And the Jewish believers would know it's a word of encouragement. Because our eyes, church, just like theirs, when we're going through diff difficult circumstances, we often go, where is the Lord in this? How will he vindicate the situation? How will he rescue and why do the wicked prosper? Have you ever asked that question? You look at the richest people around the world and say, why are they prospering? And look what they do with their money. James is saying here, don't fret. Don't fret. 
God will judge the wicked. Jesus used the word woe. In Luke chapter 6, verses 24 and 25, Jesus says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are now full, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. The encouragement to the church was although you are going through severe testing, severe suffering, know that God is a perfect judge. God is a perfect judge. James continues in verses 2 and 3. He says, Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Tell you what, he's holding back nothing. He is speaking like the prophets of old. It's exactly the judgment that will come upon the wicked rich. Now, time out real quick. Money is not the problem. Do you guys understand that? Some people say, oh, money is the problem. No, trusting money, worshiping money, that's the problem. Money, church, is not the root of all evil. So what? Doesn't the scripture say that? No, it doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. Where I chase after money more than I chase after the Lord. Where I idolize money, where I think money is going to be my savior. It'll be my rescue. And you know what? Even us as believers sometimes think, if only I had some money, things would be better. The Lord is our savior. The Lord is our provider. James is not arguing that money is evil. What he's saying is riches are not going to help on the day of judgment. Riches, you're not going to pay a bail and God's going to say, oh, that's enough money, I'll let you, let you get by. Scripture says he'll by no means clear the guilty. That's why Christ had to come. Jesus taught this in Matthew chapter 6. Starting in verse 19, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. For these landowners, their trust was in the riches. And they did anything they could to make more money. They were hoarders. And part of that was taking advantage of the Christians. Those who were looking to labor to make a day's wage, to provide for the families, they took advantage of them. Paul instructs Timothy when we talk about the rich in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 through 19. Apostle Paul says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. So real quick, money is not evil. But we can't trust in money. Our hope, our salvation is not in money, it's in God. He is the one who provides us with everything to enjoy. Paul continues right here in 1 Timothy. They are to do good, speaking of the rich, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Guess what? These landowners, that wasn't them. They were all about three people. You guys remember those three people? Me, myself, and I. That's all they cared about. Providing for their own. 
building bigger barns, storing up more for themselves, and doing anything they could to get more, including taking advantage of these Christian believers. That scripture continues, says, thus storing up treasure for themselves is good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of what is truly life. The reason I put that verse in there, not because it has anything to do with the rich that were oppressing the Christians, but for us, we have wealth. You might say, well, I'm not as rich as that person over there in the church or, or that person over there, but we have been blessed with much more than those around the globe. We need to be wise stewards of what God's given us. James continues, in his prophetic speech, speaking about these rich landowners, verse 4, he says, Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields. Guess who he's speaking of? The Christian believers. The ones they're taking advantage of. He says, Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. These are Jewish landowners. They know the law in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 15. Look what it says. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it. Lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. You guys see what James just said in verse 4? He said they're crying out against you. They're crying to the Lord and he has heard their cry. But somehow, because they're Christians, they justify it. They're Christians. We'll take advantage of them. We'll use them. James continues in verse 5. He says, you've lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. James refers to there's going to be a, a day of a great reversal of fortune. There's coming a day of a great reversal of fortune where the poor in this life will be rewarded with riches and treasures in heaven. But the flip of that will be true as well. The rich now who are exploiting these Christians, although they're wealthy now, they'll be bankrupt then. And the only thing that lies ahead for them is judgment. That their riches now are like evidence in a heavenly court. Jesus put it this way, Mark chapter 8, verse 36. He said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What does it profit? And that was what was going on with these rich landowners. They just cared about the here and now, cared about the wealth, and now judgment is being called out what's going to happen. Verse 6, James writes, You have condemned and you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. He's rever referring to a judicial murder, meaning you've taken away their primary way to provide a living for their families. But notice he says about the Christian, He does not resist you. I want you to think about that. This entire epistle that James writes is saying there's got to be an outward evidence of you being a believer. Not that you would just say, hey, I'm a Christian, but there's got to be evidence. Biggest sign of that, humility. Another sign of that, completely trusting God. James is writing this now to encourage them, continue trusting God as you submit to these corrupt landowners. Continue trusting God. 
it says here, they don't resist you to the corrupt landowners. The Christian humbly submits because his hope and his trust is in the Lord. Church, I want to speak to you on that real quick. When was the last time you said, how long do I have to be a doormat? Nobody raised their hand. No one shouted out an answer. But I'm assuming that thought has come by sometime in our minds, whether it's in a relationship with somebody, whether it's at work or somewhere. How long? I want you to look at the example of Christ. How long? Until death. Why? Because the glory of God. We are a living testimony of God. We're a living testimony of His grace and His mercy. Now, I'm not talking about you know, someone just jumping up and down on you and you just sitting there going, okay, just keep kicking me. I'm talking about most of us speak of emotion. How long is the emotion of this? Do I have to go through my boss berating me until I can say, hey, enough? Or my spouse saying bemeaning things until I say, hey, enough? Here, they had people that were ripping them off. They were laboring day after day just trying to provide for a meal for their family. And it says they submitted. They did not resist them. They trusted the Lord. Church, where did their strength come from? The Lord. When we ask the question, when is enough enough? When do I get to stand up? Guess who I'm focused on? Me. But instead I need to cry out to God, God, help me. God, I'm at the end of me. God, help. And guess what, church? He will. He will. So that was the condemnation that goes towards the rich. Now it's the encouragement for us. We're going to see three points of encouragement to pace, patiently persevere through adversary. Three points if you're taking notes this morning. Point number one will be God's nearness. Point two will be God's people. And point three will be God's love. So here James transitions to speaking to the brothers, the believers in the church. Point number one, God's nearness. Look with me at James chapter 5, verse 7, just the beginning. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, speaking to the believers, until the coming of the Lord. Now, believer, speaking to the Christians here this morning, how often do you think about the coming of the Lord? For some of us, we get caught in the rut of the day-to-day, -day, and we don't remember that very often. I will tell you this, depending on where we are in life, we're at a peak, or a valley, oftentimes that reflects how often we're thinking about the coming of the Lord. If you are in a valley and times are real difficult, it's, oh, Lord, come. But when you're at a peak, you're like, man, times are good right now. Things are going okay. Things are smooth. But you know what suffering is? Suffering is when you're looking up going, Lord, come quickly. Lord, come quickly. Deliver us. Coming of the Lord gives a twofold hope to all believers. According to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, believers are looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. That's a hope we look forward to. We have an eternal hope as believers to live forever with no more tears. To live forever with no more pain. To live forever with no more sorrow. To live forever with no more sin. To live in a place of perfection in the presence of our Lord. That is an eternal hope. One we should long for. One that we're excited about. 
That's one side of the coming of the Lord. But there's another side. That the Lord is going to come and He's going to judge the wicked. That if you are suffering under the hands of someone who is wicked, someone who is contrary to the Lord, the ways of the Lord, understand that when the Lord comes, He will judge the wicked. That vengeance does not belong to you. It belongs to the Lord. I want you to look at these verses with me talking about the coming of the Lord. We see them in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just, listen, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. You guys hear that? God sees it as just, that he is the defender, that he is the judge. That when you say, well, what about my boss who's doing all these things? What about this other person, this other wicked person? God sees it just to come and inflict them for what they've afflicted you with. Look with me at this affliction. He's going to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, look at this, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. And, look at the second part, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Stop there for a second. Jesus said, there will be many who say to him, Lord, Lord, but truly do not know him. There are many who will profess the name of Christ yet not be transformed by His Spirit, not be regenerated, not be a child of His. There will be no outward evidence of fruit of repentance in their life. And they are those that do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. The same vengeance that's coming upon those who do not believe is coming upon those who say they believe, but there's no evidence in their life for it. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might, when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Church, know this, the coming of the Lord, there's great hope for the believer. That we will be with Him forever. That we will be in a place of perfection. That there will be no more sorrow, no more pain, no more sadness that it's going to be a wonderful place for all eternity, that we will be accepted in the presence of our Lord, that we will be with Him for all eternity. But the second part, as we live here and we suffer, if you're afflicted by unbelievers, maybe they don't like your Christianity. It's not your Christianity they don't like. They don't like your Christ. They like darkness. And if you're living as a Christian, you are living as the light and the darkness likes the darkness. And when light comes around, it exposes the darkness. So they hate you. Just like they hated Christ. The encouragement here is, don't fret. That we have a great judge. A just judge who's going to come. James then gives us an illustration of being patient during these times of suffering. He used the example of a farmer. James chapter 5, verse 7, he continues, after saying, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord, he says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, 
being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Church, do you know who controls the early and late rains? God does. God brings that about in his perfect time. There is nothing that the farmer can do to change that. He has to be patient and trust in the Lord. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, a word of encouragement. We read, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Church, you ever gone through suffering? You ever gone through where people are judging you, maligning you because of your beliefs in Christ? They make fun of you, maybe ostracize you. The word is, be patient. Patiently persevere. Through the grace of God, continue doing good. Do not be worn out. Do not listen to the lie of, you know what, forget it. I'm just going to throw in the towel. God's Spirit abides in you. You won't be able to. He will help you to endure through it. He will bring you through it. He says, continue doing good. We read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, In this you rejoice, that now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And what are those trials for? He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes. Though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Church, we've already started in James chapter 1 where he said, when you fall into trials of various kinds, what do you do? Count it all joy. He did not say get up and click your heels because it feels great. He says, know that God is working in those things for your good and his glory. That my faith is going to increase. That endurance is going to be built up in me. The word of encouragement we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And I'll tell you what, when you go through a lot of suffering, you kind of want to curl up, put your thumb in the mouth, and just lay in bed and just stay there. The encouragement from Scripture is press on. Patiently persevere through it. Have your hope in God that this isn't going to be forever. James just finished writing before this that your life, church, is like a vapor. We talked about it last time we studied through James that some of us look back and go, man, where did the years go? Where did they go? It was like that. What by so quickly? What by so fast? And then we look at our trials, we look at our suffering, and we say, but it seems like so long. It seems like when you're suffering, the clock doesn't move. It's taking forever. The encouragement is focus on the Lord. Lift your eyes to the heavens. Persevere patiently through it. Verse 8, James chapter 5. Speaking to the believer, he says, You also, just like that farmer, be patient. Look what he says. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Establish me, strengthen your heart. When you focus on circumstance, what happens to us? Woe is me. It's like a downward spiral, like, oh my goodness, I can't see a light at the end of the tunnel. The circumstances seem to overwhelm us. James here says, establish our strength in your heart. Focus on the Lord, that he's coming again. 
Lift your eyes beyond your circumstances and focus on the Lord. Church, I'm going to tell you practically, that's not easy to do. Because before us is the reality of our circumstances. But by our faith, we're to live by faith and not by sight. It's an active thing that we have to pursue. God, right now, I don't see it in this, but I trust you that you've got this. We have to actively put on that mindset. We have to establish our hearts in the faith that my God who spoke the world into existence, my God who rescued me from my sin, he's got this. Church, we have to actively put that on. Because our circumstances so quickly take us sideways. So quickly. We need to focus on Christ. We need to focus that he's coming again. That there's great, great hope for the believer. James chapter 5, verse 9. Anybody have a black highlighter like a Sharpie highlighter? Anybody use that in your Bible? Okay, don't. That's a joke. That's where you just like cross out stuff. Because what happens when we go through difficult times? What usually comes out of our mouth? Complaints. Usually murmur. We grumble about those circumstances. And look what James writes. He says, do not grumble against one another, brothers so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Whether it's an employer, whether it's a spouse or somebody else, if they are not treating you rightly, guess what we have a tendency to do? Complain. Now we have social media. People go on social media and complain to the world. I want to explain something to you real quick about complaining. Who is the only one that's sovereign, who is in control of all things? Okay, stop there for a second. Time out. I want you to think about that statement. Who is in control of all things? God. Hold on to that. So when I complain about my circumstances, ultimately, who am I complaining about? God. I'm saying... These circumstances that God knows about, that God has ordained in my life for my good and His glory, I'm complaining about those, which means I'm complaining about God's providence. And I will tell you this, church, last time I complained, that's not where my mind went immediately. Like, oh, I'm just playing against God right now. But because I was focused on me and my emotion and my feelings and my circumstances, I didn't even think about right now, I'm complaining against God. Think about that. James says, do not grumble. The reason he says that, that's the natural response. It's the woe is me. Look at the circumstance. Look at the way my boss has treated me. Look at the way my spouse has treated me. Look at the way, fill in the blank. And we begin to complain. Not going back to what James started with, of count it all joy. God, this is difficult. But God, I know you said you're going to use it for my good. God, help me to cling to you. Remember, church, if you're taking notes, complaining is always first against God. That's huge. We get a word of encouragement not to complain in Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15 tells us, do all things without complaining or disputing. You guys know what that word all means? Really hidden Greek word. It means all. Everything. Do everything you do without grumbling or disputing. Why? One is, if God has saved us from darkness and made us light, we're to be a witness of grace to everyone around us. But when we grumble and complain like everybody around us, guess what? We look like pigs in the world. 
But when we are satisfied in God, when we know that God's got this, when we can find our comfort in Him, the world looks and goes, man, I want what they got. They're going through the same circumstances. And how are they so content? Because my God's got this. My God is the author and finisher of my faith. God's got this. God is not going to allow me to fall out of his hand. He's got this. And I can find comfort in that. He's got this. So I can do all things without grumbling, disputing, that you may be, listen, blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. See the last part? Among whom you shine as lights in the world. Believer, when you cling to Jesus in suffering, people see that. People take notice there's something different about the way you're going through suffering that those around you are not. Now realize this. I'm not saying you're not going to feel it. We still feel it. Suffering hurts and it hurts bad. But we have a great hope and a great God, a God of compassion that we can go to and say, God, help me. God, you're a God of comfort. Comfort me, God. God, I need help. And our God is real. And our God is living. And our God does comfort us. So the first point of encouragement is God's near. Know that the coming of the Lord is at hand. James then is going to point us to the second point of encouragement to patiently persevere through adversity. And it's looking at God's people, specifically those who have gone before us. James chapter 5, verse 10, going into verse 11. He says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast, and you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. Church, I don't want to like put you on notice and everybody know how much you know about the Old Testament, but if you've read anything about the prophets, it didn't usually go well for them. God gave them a command to go and instruct the people that you are fallen away from the Lord, that you are chasing after other idols, and you are to repent and turn back to the Lord. You know when people are in their flesh, how much they like that message? As brothers and sisters in the Lord, you know you are to encourage one another in that same message, to go and encourage people in the Lord. And if you've ever been obedient to go do that, typically people don't just go, oh, thank you so much. I appreciate you telling me that. Because if they're in sin, they're already in the flesh. Here, we see those prophets of old who suffered greatly to the point of death, that they go to obey God, do as he said, and instead... They receive a bunch of stones being flying at them, and some to the point of death. How about Job? A man who would walk righteously before God. That the enemy of our soul would stand before God and say, oh yeah, Job, sure. Well, let me go test him a little bit. Let's see if he still worships you. Who's in complete control? God is. God permitted it. He allowed Satan to come and test Job. And the testament of Job, church, I haven't gone through anything like that. Oh, I've gone through suffering, but nothing that compares to the suffering that Job went through. And what happens when Job loses everything? Naked I come, naked I go. God gives, God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Oh, my. That's an example we're to look to, to be encouraged by. 
that when I'm going through suffering, I can look at the saints of old and go, man, look at them. God enabled them to persevere through what they went through. And when I look in relation to what I'm going through, man, Job. Job went through so much. And then Job's got his helper, his wife, who comes alongside him and says, really? Curse God and die already. Thanks for being my helper. Who was the helper to die? We're to look at the saints of old. And we're to be encouraged by their lives that they continued walking in obedience no matter what it cost, no matter what the suffering, because they had a hope that was in front of them. They had an eternal hope, the same hope that we have, church. A hope that we can fix our eyes on. We should be encouraged by their obedience. We should be encouraged that God sustained them, that he helped them to persevere through the most difficult of circumstances. And the same God who enabled them to persevere is the same God that will get us to persevere. That's a great word of encouragement. Jesus spoke this way. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 to 12, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Sit there and look at those words again. He didn't say, Blessed are those who act like an idiot and are persecuted. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for standing rightly before God, for having their convictions that I can't fold to these convictions no matter what other people think. Whether it's my friends, whether it's those around me, I'm not going to give in to the conviction before God, that I stand before God to honor Him, to glorify Him. He says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of words or of evil against you falsely on my account. Stop there. Anybody ever been falsely accused? How blessed did you feel? He's not speaking of an emotion, a feeling. He's speaking about the reality. That if we are truly gods, that if we are living out being a light, we will be persecuted. That those who desire to live godly will be persecuted. And however, what is that a testimony of? I'm a child of God. This life is but a vapor. And I will be in eternity forever with my Lord. That's the encouragement. That's the blessing. He says, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And look what Jesus said lastly. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The example. That just like they were persecuted, so shall we go through persecution. So as encouragement to patiently persevere through difficult times, we look at the examples of God's people in the scriptures. We see Job, we see the prophets, and we're reminded God helped them to persevere. God, even right now in the midst of the suffering, even though I can't see the light, that God, I look and I'm encouraged that God, you help the saints persevere and you will help me to persevere as well. The third point, last point we see to encourage us to patiently persevere through adversity is God's love. At the end of verse 11, James writes, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. I want you to think about the last suffering you went through. How did you respond to it? Where did you fix your gaze? Was it on the circumstances? Did a fist go up to shake at God? God, where are you in this? 
Because James argues that through the suffering, we're to be reminded of God's love. That we have a God who is compassionate. We have a God who is merciful. And I want to unpack that a little bit for you. We read in the Psalm 103, verse 8, that the Lord is merciful and gracious, and He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Church, when you're suffering, do you feel love? So many of us, not many of us, all of us, because we have emotion, we often give in to the emotion rather than clinging to the truth. My God is still loving at all times. It is His character. He is God who is love. That even when I feel like this doesn't feel good, it doesn't change God's character. It doesn't change God's sovereignty, that He's still in control of all things. But here's the reality. God is love. The only reason we gather on the Sunday morning, for those of us who come here and profess to be believers, we gather because of the work of Jesus Christ. We gather because the demonstration of God that was love. He put His Son on the cross in our place. That's love. And i got to tell you, that's far greater than any suffering I'll ever experience on earth. That God would send His only Son who never sinned to die in my place. A demonstration of amazing love. God is a God of love. That God would send Jesus Christ to save me and to save you, church. That the Scriptures declare that we were dead in sin. Dead. But God made us alive together with Christ. That when Christ went to that cross, He paid the full penalty of our sin. That we could be not only forgiven, He takes our sin, but in exchange, He gives us His righteousness. Church, it's an amazing transaction. I will tell you week after week of the beauty of the cross. That on that bloody cross, a beautiful transaction. That when we speak of God and we look at our circumstances, say, but look how difficult these circumstances are. Look to the cross. Look to God's love. Look to what He's done on your behalf. Our life, church, is a great Our suffering will be gone. And we will be with Him for all eternity. James encourages us to endure, to persevere, to be patient, to know that God is a perfect judge. To know that God, if you look at the saints that have gone before us, has caused them to endure through great suffering. And to be victorious, to be overcomers. That God is a God of love. Lastly, in the final verse here, wrapped up, James brings up our tongue again. Verse 12, he says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. I'm going to wrap this into our text this morning and say this. When you go through suffering, be careful with your words. Be careful with your words. James previously said, be careful and don't boast about tomorrow, because we don't know anything about tomorrow. God does. Don't be arrogant about tomorrow. But he does say, you have a witness in what you do. Instead of swearing, instead of saying, I promise, he says, be a person of integrity. Walk through your suffering, walk through your trials, and be a person of integrity. That if you said yes, let it be yes. And if you said no, let it be no. That as we go through suffering, 
as we wait for the coming of the Lord, that we're to walk in integrity. Church, this morning I want to tell you this, as we close the sermon this morning, if you are currently not going through a time of suffering, praise the Lord. If you are currently going through a time of suffering, praise the Lord. Because God's got this. God has ordained everything that's going on. That God promises that for those who love Him, He's going to work all these things together for good. That all those trials, all that suffering, He's going to use in our lives, according to Romans 8.29, to conform us into the image of Christ. To make us more and more like Jesus. You might say, well, that's not what I feel like becoming right now. I just want to get out of the suffering. God knows what's best. God knows what's good for us. He knows what's going to bring Him the most glory. So church, this morning, might you cling to Him if you're here? And might you cling to Him if you're down here in the valley? Might you know that God is our defense? God is our hope? God is our strength? If you're here this morning, you say, man, this sounds like a great God, a God of love, a God that would send His own Son to die in my place, a God who is a God of compassion and mercy, and this is a God I want to know. Scripture declares two things. So the first thing is, you must see that you need a Savior to begin with. That you have fallen short of the glory of God. That you're a sinner. And I'm not pointing fingers at anybody because we all, according to Scripture, are in the same boat. That we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Scripture says you must repent. It means you must not only acknowledge that, but you must turn from living your way and turn to God. And you must put your hope and your trust in Jesus Christ alone. That He paid it all that the price was paid for your sin, that he rose again, conquered sin and death, so that you too might inherit eternal life. This morning, if you're here this morning and you did not know this Jesus, you have not committed your life and surrendered to this Christ, might today be the day that you turn in repentance and faith in Jesus. Might today be the day that God, through the power of his Spirit, gives you a new heart and new desires to chase after him, to glorify him. Those of us who have done that, Let's cling to him. He is good. And he'll get us to the end. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of encouragement this morning. That even in the most difficult circumstances, God, you are near. In the most difficult of times, when in our through our eyes, we can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. That God, you've got it under control that you're a God that we can cling to, that you're a God who has compassion, you're a God who is merciful and gracious. God, for us here this morning who proclaim the name of Christ, who have been saved by grace this morning, God, we thank you and praise you for sustaining us. We thank you, God, that you will help us to endure to the end. God, I pray for anyone in this place this morning who has yet to repent and to trust in Christ, that this morning your spirit would draw them to that today would be a day of salvation. That today they would be given a new heart, new desires. That they would go from darkness to light and that their light would glorify you. God, all of this to the praise of your glorious name. God, with one voice might we exalt you, Lord. We thank you for your goodness and for your love. We pray these things in Jesus' name.